Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. Oh, good Father, we come before you this morning. We pray that you would help us to shift our gaze, our eyes from looking at things that are worthless, Lord, but to find what is of gold. Lord, to find what we truly treasure, to shift our eyes from the ways of the world, to shift our eyes to the wisdom of the world. Lord, we pray that you would give us life according to your ways, that we would know of your glorious promise, that we might fear you with awe and reverence, or turn us away from the reproach that we dread. For your rules are good. Help us to long for your precepts. That we might be able to find life in you. In you alone. We pray in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. Hear now the word of the Lord from Jude, verse 17 to 25. This is God's holy and errant infallible word. Please take heed how you hear. But you must remember, beloved, predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. Do others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling, and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, and now and forever. Amen. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Jude has finished his first half of his letter as he writes to those who are called, beloved, and kept. And he has spent the first half addressing these false teachers. We saw this in phrases like they, them, themselves. But now Jude shifts his focus. He speaks not of they or them. These. He has told the church of these false teachers and their errors which they have taught as they have crept in. They have perverted God's grace into sensuality. They have denied Jesus as the Lord and Master. He has used illustrations from the Old Testament, painted pictures of what these false teachers are like using images of nature. But finally now he has laid the charges on the table. That these false teachers are grumblers, malcontent, sin followers, boasters, using those who are less fortunate to be able to gain some form of personal 
uh, gain in some form of boasting. Jude has pointed out the errors of their teaching. He has shown the outcome of these false teachers, what lies in wait for them. However, there's a shift now in his focus. Now to true believers. As he begins verse 17, he starts not with them or they, but but you. In contrast to the false teachers, he focuses now on the ones whom he calls beloved. As a summary, I think, of those three terms that we looked at in verse 1, those who are called beloved and kept. Now, we might say, the first half of Jude's letter is unpacking of verse 4, where he explains those who have crept in unnoticed. And the second half is that explaining of verse 3. How then we are to be able to contend for the faith. Now, I think this is nice and neat and true to some form of degree, but we need to know that even as if Jude now speaks directly to uh, the, those who are called beloved and kept, it's not merely he then just puts the false teachers out of his view. We need to see that there, there's an overlap here. In all of this, he is writing the whole letter to not just not the false teachers, but those who are called beloved and kept. So even understanding the false teaching is, in a way, contending for the faith. You need to understand how the errors are that have crept in to be able to know then what you are contending for. It is showing them they need to be able to know the true faith which has been handed down delivered to all the saints, but also the seriousness of those errors that have crept into the church. That once you start denying the grace of God and and turn it into sensuality, you lose the good news of the gospel. Once you deny Jesus as the Lord and Master, you lose the essence of the gospel. He will later in this section show us how to deal with false teaching. But he is not mincing words when it comes to what they are teaching and the outcome of their teaching, both temporally but also eternally. We need to be able to call out errors and heresies. We need to be able to show grace and mercy to those and be able to teach them, as we'll see later in verses 22 and 23. But we should not. Show this grace and mercy to false teaching. There's a manner in which we need to show grace and mercy to those who are distorted, but not to the teaching itself. The church has many, much room for sinners who need mercy. But there should be no room in the church for false teaching that perverts grace or denies Christ. And as mentioned before, now we see a shift in Jude's thinking where he now specifically addresses them, but you. He specifically turns to those who are called beloved and kept. He started verse 5 by explaining he wanted to remind them of something that once they knew, but then they had forgotten. 
Now in this section, he tells them to remember that the church at this point had forgotten several things. They had forgotten what happened to those who died in the wilderness, but also even the apostles and what the apostles had told them. We see Jude making connections in the Old Testament and applying it to New Testament believers in the first half. And now he points specifically at the New Testament and tells us of this. He calls them beloved, which again is shorthand for that summary of those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. So what does he want them to remember? He wants them to remember the predictions of the apostles. Now for such a small and short book, this has been a book that is filled with scholarly debate and controversial issues in scholarship. Due to similar writings in 2 Peter, Jude's use of the book of Enoch, and other apparent issues that people point out. And in verse 17, we find this apparent issue. In verse 14, Jude mentioned that the Enoch prophesied. Now, he says the apostles predicted. Now, some scholars question this statement written by Jude because he uses the phrase apostles. I find it hard to understand their opposition to this, but from what I understand, they question How could the apostles make such a prediction when we have no record of just this statement made by the apostles as a group? However, many times we see the apostles make similar statements. In Acts chapter 20, Paul makes this as he meets with the elders of Ephesus, the beach of Miletus. In 1 Timothy in chapter 4, but even Matthew An apostle records Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 7. I think it's very limited reading of word to be able to say that as the apostles predicted, that we must have an accurate account of these exact words which are said here. We can clearly see that the apostles, generally speaking, have made this claim and statement. The second issue they raise is the past tense of the word that they said. They imply that because this is in the past tense, the apostles then must have died. And again, I think it's a limiting scope of what this word can mean. Another issue they say lastly is they believe that this must have been written down and then appears to be a quote closest source which you can find a similar quote is found in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. Depending on which you thought is written first would alter then your understanding. I believe Jude was written before Peter, and Peter is somewhat of a commentary on the book of Jude. However, if Peter was written first, Peter uses the phrase, the apostles. The best reading, I believe, is that Jude is summarizing the teaching of the apostle through oral tradition that they have been taught by Jesus during his earthly ministry based on Matthew chapter 7, and then this becomes an essence of their teaching that they pass on. So it's not necessarily the apostles got together and said, we need to make a statement about what is going to happen. 
Here's our prediction. It's not that the apostles got together like they did in Acts chapter 15 and made an official statement and had it recorded there. It's not that it speaks uh, of the apostles, uh, all of the apostles, but what it is is a summary of the apostles' teaching, which is found, which we can see clearly through what it is. And the past tense of the word is merely that this is something that they have said in the past. They might still be living, but they could have still said this. He's summarizing their teaching. So what was this apostle's prediction? And their apostle's prediction was that in the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. And Jude is quite simply just saying that we're not to be surprised in the covenant community when we have people who are these false teachers. As he turned back to be able to look in the Old Testament, and he looks at how in the Old Testament, those who would have been a part of the nation of Israel underneath the covenant community, who have received the sign of the covenant community, that they're still a part of that community. It's not merely that all these errors come from outside, although these issues, sometimes it is, that the world creeps into the church. But Jude is saying that in the Old Testament, you had false teachers from the beginning like Cain. You had people who were questioning God's appointed leaders, God's ways, God's salvation, God's creation, all these other things. Judah's then saying, why are we surprised when it's the same in the New Testament in the church? What did we expect in the church? For it to be exactly like heaven? Jude saw that in the Old Testament. But he, he doesn't go to the Old Testament to prove his point now. He goes back to the apostles, and the apostles even said, in the last time, there were always scoffers following their own ungodly passions. That the church will have scoffers who do not know or follow the Word of God, but they follow their own ungodly passions. Now, this is a very important point that Jude is making. We need to understand that he is not addressing the world out there. He is not turning and saying, look at the ways of the world and the errors and the faults of the world, pointing the finger at people who do not claim to know God. He is specifically saying that here are these scoffers who follow their own ungodly passions are those who are members of the church. They've crept into the church. Within the people of God who are called to be godly, who are called to be holy, are ungodly people, unholy people, who have not had their hearts changed, who do not follow Christ, but continue to follow their sinful passions. And Jude is simply pointing out that not only we should know this from the Old Testament, but we also should know this from the New Testament from the apostles. 
And his reminder is that we should know this. We should remember this. They said it would happen. But we also should be ready when it does happen. It is sad to say, but in this age, between Jesus ascending into the Father, ascending to the Father and Him coming back in that last day, we will not have true peace. And what I mean by that is that conflict will remain. We'll have peace given to us in times of trouble. Jesus says in the upper room discourse that the Holy Spirit will come. It's not that there will be no trouble, but we would have peace in trouble. Conflict will remain. Jesus did not say that Satan would not attack God's people, but He said that the gates of hell would not prevail. In that essence of that statement implies that attack and conflict will remain. There is a raging war. He goes on to be able to tell the disciples that He gives them the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. In all of this, it implies that conflict remains until Christ returns. But we need to understand that Christ will be victorious in the end. And Jude, as he says that we're contending for the faith, we should not be surprised that we need to contend. Thomas Schreiner explains it well. The church, therefore, should not be surprised at the intrusion into the congregation, but should be prepared to fend off the insidious presence of the interlopers. We should be prepared to fend off the insidious presence of the interlopers. We should not be surprised that within the church, there are ungodly people. What do these people do? Well, they cause divisions and separation. Dude, in the first section, he speaks specifically of the false teachers. And as he tells the church that we should not be surprised in this battle, he tells them what these false teachers look like. In verse 19, Jude speaks of these false teachers yet again. And I think this could be the most spine-chilling verse in the whole book of Jude. As we think about what the church has to face and the hurdles that have to be crossed. Tells them that they cause divisions. He warns them that these false teachers will cause divisions. If you have been a Christian for any length of time, involved in a church, you will know stories either that have happened in your church, or if you see you have seen happen in churches. And you drive down even streets or roads, and you can see the stories of these divisions. Divisions that stem from false teaching. This does not mean that every church is a cause of false teachers. 
So what then are we talking about when it comes to the word division? Now, Presbyterians are known for some of their divisive uh, splits in the church. Some people have called them the split peas. You walk down, you can always see a fork in the road leading to another fork in the road. Now, if you look at the history of Presbyterian denominations, you see this. This branches in these forks. Some of these forks join back together again. Even our church has a story of a split, a fork in the road, separating from one Presbyterian denomination to join another. But even if you go back to the Protestant branch of the Christian church, separated from the Roman Catholic church, there's a fork. We think these and classify these as divisions. We need to understand what Jude is actually implying in this. It's not that there would never be divisions. What Jude is implying is these ungodly people are the reason that these divisions are caused. For each of these examples I've mentioned, that this branch that separates from you might call the trunk, the reason for all of these is that the trunk was rotten. The trunk departed from the essence of the gospel. that they went and they departed from that faith which was delivered to all the saints. The Catholic Church perverted the grace into merit earned through senses. They denied Jesus as the head and master of His church. In the Presbyterian denominations, they separated important issues based on faith and conscience former denomination I was a part of, the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church, is known because of this controversy called the Marrow Controversy. It was formed, actually there's two, there's the Associate Presbyterians and Reformed Presbyterians that joined together, that, that fork that joined together. But they essentially separated from the church because it was a perversion of how Grace was being offered. The brothers who started the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church, or the, the seed of that, said that there should always be a free offer of the gospel to all. And you read this book of the Marrow Controversy, it's uh, apparent. A good summary of this is in uh, Sinclair Ferguson's book, The Whole Christ summarizes errors that came in there, or even our own denomination, the PCA, separated from the rotten trunk, which is now what is called the PCUSA. And they ultimately denied there was no need for grace at all. That ultimately, that always led to heaven, so they said. They denied the Scriptures and Christ's Word and His church, ultimately selecting their own passages, distorting the grace of God into sensuality. And the division does not come from those outside the church, but all, ultimately there's this essence where it's not that a division is the sense of separating from a church body. 
The vision comes from the separation of that true essence of this faith which has been delivered to all the saints. And If you see that, then the ungodly people who shift away, who, who change the gospel are the ones who are actually departing, who are actually divide, causing those divisions. It's not those who remain steadfast to God's word. Although the denomination's names might change, it is true to the essence of who is holding to that true faith which has been delivered to all the saints. And we pray that this church would never close its doors. But our prayer might be that we would close our doors if we were to go down that path and not offer this true gospel found in God's word. That we would rather remain steadfast and faithful to God and his word and the truth contained in the Bible. That we would remain faithful to the word of God as our only rule of faith and practice. Not to be able to divide and seek to be able to follow a false way. The second thing Jude says is that they are worldly. Jude then says these false teachers are worldly. Again, this should be a jarring jarring statement to us. Jude is talking about people within the church. Jesus said, I have given them your word. The world has hated me, them, because they are not of the world. Just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but you keep them from the evil one. Jesus said that his disciples would be in the world, but not of the world. Yet in this church that Jude is talking about, he is explicitly saying that those who call themselves Christ's disciples are not only in the world, but they are of the world. They are worldly people. uh, James says, Jude's brother, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it's earthly, unspiritual, demonic. Here within the church, most likely the church, there's membership roles and these people Focus on what is natural and physical. Now, they might not deny the spiritual, but their actions are only focused on this world. They spend no time thinking of their souls, but only their own bodies. They think only of today and never of eternity. We think of their own pleasure, not... God's glory. In The Pilgrim's Progress, written by John Bunyan, there's a man called Mr. Worldly Wise Man. Mr. Worldly Mind Man is actually quite wise and a knowledgeable man. But one of his downsides was he was not able to see past the natural. He warns Christian as he seeks to be able to lead him astray, not to get him to go down the king's way. He said, hear me, I am older than thou. Thou art like to meet thee with in the way which thou goest, wearisomeness, painfulness, hunger, perils, nakedness, sword, lions, dragons, darkness, and in the words, death and whatnot. 
These things are certainly true, having been confirmed by many testimonies. And should a man so carelessly cast away himself by giving heed to a stranger? Your Mr. Worldly Wise Man comes and tells Pilgrim, do not go down this road. Make yourself comfortable here. Look, I'm older than you. This is what's going to happen if you go down this road. You're going to be weary. You're going to see pain, hunger, perils, nakedness, sword, lions, danger, dar- dragons, darkness, death. That's what's going to happen to you if you walk down this way. Mr. Worldly Wiseman was telling the exact truth. Christian, as he goes down his way, he sees all of these things. He comes across to them. Christian would face all of these dangers. But he did not understand the purpose of going through these dangers and the outcome at the end. He only saw these dangers on a physical level. He never understood the destination that Christian would one day arrive. And we need to be cautious that this does not become our perspective. We don't just merely listen to what the world has to teach us, but rather the Word. We understand that we are citizens of heaven. And this should have a huge impact on how we live. The last thing that Jude says is they are devoid of the Spirit. We should not be surprised by this last point if we understand all the previous points. Paul writes, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. However, we see that someone can be within the church, but not a true Christian. We have seen this point before. Here comes the shocking part of this passage. If they are devoid of the Spirit, then they cannot Truly repent and be born again. Jude can make this statement under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We cannot make such a claim based on what tomorrow will bring. We do not know if a person is a true believer who has wandered, an unconverted person who will become saved, or reprobate. However, We can be aware that just because someone is in the church, even in leadership in a church, does not mean that they are truly saved. Many kings of Israel, even the kings of Judah, from all scriptural perspectives, were not believers. You have there an image of those who are in positions of authority and leading, and yet they do not believe. See this even in the New Testament. It's not for us to be able to make such an eternal judgment. Yet we need to be sure that this can be a reality. 
it's a depressing thing to be able to think about that even in this life, the church, an image of God's love to His people, can still be filled with people that do not understand this love which was shown to them. We always need to be cautious, careful, aware that we might be able to contend for the faith. The Jude teaches us a part of contending for the faith is knowing the issues. But I want to leave you with one thing. We contend for the faith because the faith is worth contending for. We contend for the faith because the faith is worth contending for. You might never want to go to court. However, you would if you had an inheritance that was worth a large amount of money. Or if someone was trying to take your house or your property or your family members away from you, you would fight for that because it is of great value to you. And this faith is worth fighting for because it is the only hope that anyone in this world can find through forgiveness of sins. It is the only way of salvation This is true grace, true mercy, true love. Not perverted like other people claiming they are using those words correctly. And we must be willing to stand firm to protect what has been delivered to all the saints. Because without it, we have no hope of salvation. We have a false gospel. and We end up like these false teachers who have been reserved this utter darkness forever. That there will be division. Worldly people. Those who are devoid of the Spirit. We give, you, we give thanks to God that He has promised that the gates of hell will not prevail. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray. O gracious and most merciful Father, we give You thanks and praise for this passage of Scripture which teaches us of this conflict which still remains in this church, in this in the church between you ascending to the Father and coming and returning. We pray, Lord, you would help us to be able to contend for the faith. Lord, we would see the value of this faith, the hope of the gospel only in this faith. Lord, help us to be able to see not just with the eyes of the world and their worldly wisdom, but give us spiritual eyes to be able to discern spiritual things. Lord, help us with this, for we know that this is not easy to us. Help us to be able to show mercy to those around us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. Seven Springs Presbyterian Church began in 1874 and is a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Glade Spring, Virginia. Please join us for worship on Sunday at 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. for His glory and His gospel.